0: You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network.
1: you're listening to metamorphosis a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers my name is igor and on today's episode i'll be speaking with dr janessa laskin a clinical associate professor of medicine in the division of medical oncology at ubc she's also the co-founder and clinical lead for bc cancer's personalized oncogenomics program so thank you so much for joining us dr laskin
0: my pleasure igor
1: Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you kind of do on a daily basis?
0: Sure. So uh, as you said, I'm a medical oncologist. So that means that I uh, think about chemotherapy and how chemotherapy may help the patients that I I see or or in a lot of cases may not help um, because with not choosing to use treatment is just as important, if not more so than trying to pick the right treatment for people. Um, I personally specialize primarily in lung cancer. So about 80% of my practice from a clinical perspective is lung cancer. And then I also see people with head and neck cancers. And I work here in BC Cancer at the Vancouver site, which is a teaching and research uh, facility as well. So uh, a big part of my job is seeing residents, medical students and fellows. Uh, So they're integrated into my clinic and I I do often mentor students in research projects and, and, and so on. Um, and then I also have the opportunity to do a variety of different research projects. So I, um, am the principal investigator of a number of clinical trials, or else I enroll patients on clinical trials with my colleagues. So that's usually new treatments that are coming along for patients, which is a really exciting part of oncology. Uh, the field evolves very quickly, um, which is one of the things I love about it. And, uh, and then I also, as you said, I'm um, the co-lead of uh, of the Personalized Oncogenomics Program, which is a big uh, genomics cancer research project um, that I'm also very excited about. I'm sure you're going to ask me other questions. So my day-to-day <laughs> life is a blend of uh, clinics. So I see patients in clinic, and then I do associated clinic work, phoning them, or the general paperwork that is associated with patients, meetings, and talking to people about their care and so on, um, and then also trying to fit in all the research aspects uh, as well. So it's pretty busy, um, but it's definitely not boring. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's my day-to-day life. And I try to get home at a reasonable hour.
1: <laughs> that's always important. Doesn't always
0: work. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fascinating. That sounds like you have a lot of roles uh, to balance and juggle. Um, did you always know that you wanted to get involved in all of these things, medical oncology and research and teaching and everything?
0: Uh No, I mean, I don't think I was the kind of person that had my life mapped out. Certainly in medical school, I was uh, always somewhat jealous or envious of the people who knew from the very beginning they wanted to be a whatever, um, because I, I did not know that. Um, but I also think that my lack of Uh, determination uh, to do one particular thing allowed me to stay open to all sorts of different possibilities and things that I might um, be interested in that I didn't even know existed. I mean, I think that's one thing about medicine. You don't even know half the things that exist when you go into it. Um, So no, I did not know where I would be. I don't even think 10 years ago, I could tell you that I would for sure be here. Uh, Although I think you know, being in, in medicine, treating patients, uh, being interested in research, that was something, of course, that uh, that has stayed with me from the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know you started uh, your medical training here uh, at UBC. Um, so where did you kind of go from there? How did you end up where you are now?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I um, I grew up in BC. So when I graduated high school, I decided to go to Montreal, which I had never been to just for an adventure. So I went to McGill and at the time I did some science and uh, a bit of genomics actually in my undergrad where I got to, you know, stick drosophila on those waxy sticks and try to see their legs and figure out what kind they were. Um, It was very basic uh, genetics, which was really interesting, but I would had no concept of how much I'd be doing now. But um, (laughs) when I finished uh, at McGill, I, I really did not have the grades or the drive to get into medicine. So I took a couple of years off and traveled and did other things and then found that I kept coming back to this question about medicine um, and being a life lifelong uh, career that would be interesting. And uh, fortunately, I had a, a, a good family friend who was a bit of a mentor in that way, um, who encouraged me to go into medicine. And uh so i came back to bc to do that so i went to me- medical school here and then i stayed for internal medicine and actually medical oncology as well um and then i went to nashville to go to vanderbilt university um had a fantastic lung program um at the time and so i spent a year there doing um a clinical fellowship in lung cancer with some really amazing people uh and then i um did not want to live and work in an american uh institution where i'd have to deal with insurance questions and uh i guess i found my true socialist medicine roots at that point um and uh decided to come back to vancouver so i've been on staff here since uh, 2003 which makes me very old <laughs> but it was a very good experience to 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 live and work um somewhere else particularly the united states mm-hmm. because I think we have this idea that the Canadian medical system is in some way inferior or that we don't have the kind of research, and that's, that's not at all true. We have an amazing system. We have to be a lot more focused uh, about our research and the questions that we ask, so we can't do everything, but I, I, I um, truly believe we have a, a very workable system that uh, provides excellent patient care.
1: So was it just the sort of um, administrative, like insurance um, kind of thing? That is that what kind of drove you away from working in the states, or were there other uh, differences that you noticed that you didn't?
0: <laughs> How far and wide is this broadcast? <laughs> no, I I loved working there, um, and uh, you know uh, it was it was a wonderful opportunity to see. I think, um, yeah, you know, significant portion of my family is American, so uh, still. I uh, did feel like I was in a foreign country, for sure, mm. in the southern U.S. Um, I think it mostly highlighted the differences um, and allowed me to, to have some clarity in terms of where I thought I wanted to make a life and practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice to know that you took a bit of time off um, before you went into medicine. And I think that's something that a lot of students are worried about, you know, taking breaks or time off and and you know I think it's very important to focus on our mental health especially so can you speak a little bit on that why you decided to take a year off or um, you know how that impacted your um, ability to get into medicine do you think if that made a difference or
0: yeah yeah I mean I think that there were a lot of people I did my undergraduate with who were you know in all of the get into medical clubs and and were determined and that was their focus and I just didn't feel like that was me. Um uh so uh I think I, I I still did all my prerequisites, but I just didn't um have that determination, I guess. And I feel like that allowed me to have more fun and and do more interesting classes. I did a I did a minor in history and philosophy of science, which was fantastic and really interesting, and I think broadened by experience in terms of being able to think about how medicine changes over time and how scientific questions evolve and and think about philosophy and psychology none of those things were open to my my friends who were just hardcore medicine keeners. And I mean, all power to them. A lot of them got into medicine and they've done great. That just wasn't, that just didn't speak to me. So Mm -hmm. when I graduated, I really didn't have any idea what I was doing. I, um, I spent some time in Africa working in a small village. I, I traveled around. Um, I actually had two years off. I then had to go and do some biochemistry, get my grades up so that I could actually, uh, Get back to to medicine and 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 came at it with a bit more maturity and a determination that that was really wanted what what I wanted to do to be honest, I think it really helped me in terms of getting into medicine because um I was able to talk about something else at the time interviews um I think they're structured quite differently now, but at the time it was just a conversation with three different physicians, and because my uh experiences were so different than everybody else you know, living in a foreign country and doing other things um, had my application stand out a little bit more. So actually, I think it was an advantage. I'm not sure it would be now because they're so structured, those interviews. But, you know, if a hundred people come along and they all have excellent grades, how are you going to remember and choose? Uh, um, so doing something different, I think, is is actually quite helpful. And I still believe that's true. Um I still think the process is able to pick people out who have something slightly different to bring. And, and that's important. The truth is when you're doing medicine, you're dealing with people uh, all the time. <laughs> you're dealing with people and you're teaching people, you're talking to people. You can't just have one cookie cutter type of medical doctor that that doesn't work. You have to have a variety. So I I guess I represented that variety at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And during your time in medical school, were you involved in a lot of extracurricular things as well? And did some of them inform kind of your decision which residency you wanted to be?
0: Well, as I said, I was lucky. I had a close family friend who was an oncologist. And so from the very beginning, I was um, allowed to come and, and spend some time in an oncology clinic, which was a really wonderful experience. At the time, our program was very didactic in nature. So we didn't really even see patients until third or fourth year. Um, Mm -hmm. so the ability to go and sit in a clinic and hear real conversations from the very beginning was a huge advantage to me. And it made me comfortable about oncology, which I think is a, is a problem because when you, uh, unless you're in an oncology environment in a clinic with oncologists, you don't see the joy and the laughing and the, you know, the, the long-term follow-up and the, uh, you know, the difficult conversations, but also just the day-to-day nature of of what oncology is like. You don't really experience that with oncology patients in the hospital. Um, so I think I got a really good, clear view of oncology from an early start, but I still wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to be. Extracurricular stuff, honestly, hardly remember. I, uh, I think I did some things, <laughs> but, but uh, <laughs> I think I mostly was just focused on trying to memorize the Krebs cycle and where the loops of (laughs) Henley were and what they did and and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what medical oncology entails and how is it different from other types of oncology?
0: Well, there's I guess there's medical oncology and radiation oncology, which is about using radiation. Um, And then there's surgical oncology. I suppose uh, there are surgeons in a variety of different surgical disciplines that focus more. Um, And so... You know, surgeons are surgeons, so they thinking about things from a surgical perspective. Um, medical oncologists are internists, so we, we are comfortable with weighing pros and cons. There's not usually a hard and fast yes, no. It's a lot of weighing um, these individual balances for patients, um, which is uh, not as much a surgical mindset, I think. Radiation is somewhere in between. Again, it's a surgical kind of intervention in the sense that it's a focused intervention. Um, and usually radiation oncologists are really fascinated by the machines and the physics um, and the math and the problem solving of all of the different uh, body systems and how they can use their computers to best uh, focus their magical beamy rays um, at the cancer. So. Um, they are all three specialties, extremely important um, in cancer treatment, but quite different. Um, one of the things I love about oncology is actually its multidisciplinary um, approach. So I'm the kind of person I I like working in a group. I like working in a team. I, I like bouncing ideas off each other. Um, I'm fine with being wrong occasionally about uh, things (laughs) and so I like the input of other people and and that's critical when you're an oncologist Um, and um, so at the heart of the three oncology specialties they are quite different in terms of who you are as a decision maker um, and how you like to approach problems. I think radiation and surgery is much more yes no let's try an intervention or not and medical oncology is um, much more, um, individualized, I guess, in a decision-making framework.
1: Great. And so how long is the residency program for that? What's sort of the pathway to getting into uh, medical oncology?
0: Um, well, first you have to do, uh, internal medicine. So, uh, usually that's a three-year program at this point. Um, and it's really, really important to be an internist, uh, in order to go ahead with oncology Um, Our patients are often very sick. Their complications are significant. We need to be very comfortable with all of their pre-cancerous comorbidities um, so that we know what we can ignore and what we can't. Quite frankly, most of medical oncology is administering poisons. Um, No matter how sophisticated we get with our targeted therapies, they still have a lot of side effects. Um, And so it's really important to have a graph. A grounding in internal medicine and after three years of internal medicine I think of course you don't know everything but you feel comfortable with diabetes management and high blood pressure and cardiac issues and and all of the things that um, affect a a patient with cancer Um, so that's that's a critical thing to do Um, and you also need you know you you have the opportunity in internal medicine to take a couple of months of each different specialty so that you can be comfortable with different antibiotics from infectious diseases and um, uh, just all, you know, all the different um, organs that are affected. And then it's uh, two years of medical oncology focused training, which is usually a rotation around different body organs. I mean, right now, oncology is still divided by the cancer primary site. So it's You know, lung cancer starts in the lung, can spread all over the place, but it's lung cancer. Um, And so we have residents rotate through the different organ systems, learning how cancer affects these systems and all the different treatment approaches. And, uh, you know, medical oncology is almost entirely outpatient-based. So that's a big learning curve, too, because a lot of what you learn in internal medicine residency is hospital-based practice. And you have to learn how to deal with phone calls, how to figure out who's sick and who isn't based on a phone call and who you need to see and how people handle medications at home. And so that's a big learning curve as well. And then a lot of us, if you want to do research, a lot of us do a year or two of a fellowship afterwards. So just to have the opportunity to dive deep into a particular organ system and and really feel like you're an expert in that.
1: So would you say that it's a good um, specialty for somebody who enjoys that sort of wide scope of um, practice?
0: Yeah, I think you, you know, the way I approached trying to figure out what I wanted to do is is by the process of elimination. Um, and I'm not sure that that's how everybody should do it by any means. But um, this is what worked for me. I clearly was not a surgeon from the very beginning uh, you know, I greatly admire surgeons, but I don't have that kind of immediate confidence about cutting something out or not. Um, I like to sort of mull over a problem and look at it from lots of different directions. And that's, you do not want a surgeon that's doing that. Mm, maybe I should take out your appendix. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. You just want someone to make a decision. Uh, so I was clearly not a surgeon. And I liked family practice, but you know it was terrifying. How are you supposed to see and evaluate patients so quickly, um, with all manner of different problems? Um, I, you know, you see a hundred people with a cold, and one of them has leukemia, and if you miss it in that five minutes, you failed. That's that was way too much pressure. I greatly admire family doctors. I did not want to do that, um, and so that's sort of you know I just eliminated a bunch of things. I ended up with thinking about pediatrics, which is quite similar to internal medicine. Um, just, you know, uh, you have to deal with a lot of parents when you think about pediatrics. So I wasn't sure about that. Um, and so, you know, internal medicine allowed me to delay my hard and fast decision making. And honestly, it comes at you really fast. Medical school, you you have to kind of know by third year. Um, and that's not a lot of time to experience things. So I liked the idea about delaying this complex problem solving, specialization issues, um, by doing a couple years of internal medicine. Um, and, and then I was able to explore those different subspecialties. Uh, so, uh, again, it was about things I've already mentioned, like, like learning and keeping up with different, um, treatments that come, uh, fast and furious, uh, not getting bored, um, interacting in a very meaningful way with patients Um, and this group-based problem-solving with lots of different options that you have to figure out who this person is in front of you, what their cancer is like, what all their other problems are, and um, try to come up with something that is meaningful for them. Um, So that's, yeah, I lost track of your question now. Maybe that's part of the problem with being an oncologist. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. <laughs> but I think, yeah, you know, it keeps it 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 is one of the things I liked was balancing all the different parts of a person into making their decision about their specific treatment. And you know, one thing about oncology, which um can be very difficult and can create a lot of pressure, but I also think um is really helpful for sustaining interest, is that what you're dealing with is an incredibly important time in someone's life. And it is a privilege to be able to help somebody, even if all you can do is help them see that this is a difficult situation, that their life is limited, um, and that they, they have to really prioritize and think about the time and energy that they have left in the world. Those are really important discussions. And I felt that they were a meaningful way to spend my career. You know, I'm here for 30 years. We put a huge amount of time and effort into getting here in school and training. And then you're here in the office doing things. I, I want it to have meaning. And with oncology, I felt like it has profound meaning and effect on patients' lives. And it's also changing really fast. The um, amount of treatments that we have now are significantly better than they were 20 years ago. The next 20, 25 years will be an amazing explosion of all sorts of different um, treatments and opportunities for patients. It's a really exciting time to be an oncologist. Um, I didn't find that as much with the other sub specialties. So for me it was pretty easy. Right. One thing I found was, you know, a lot of people found it really sad. Um, and it can be incredibly sad, but I also felt like it was an opportunity to really help people. And so of course it can be sad, but you know, a heart attack is sad too. Uh it's it's just a different way of of becoming involved in people's lives and 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 helping. And so that um made it more meaningful to me. I did do a couple of different rotations. I knew I wanted to do oncology. I, I did think about other subspecialties as well, but I guess I thought about the bread and butter of what I wanted to see every day. Um, because I think it's hard when you're training, everything is so new and exciting and you're focused on learning that specialty. But you know, once you've been a, a an oncologist or cardiologist or whatever for five years, y- you know all of the medicine. I mean, you're going to learn a few new things, but you know it all. So what is going to keep you interested day after day after day um, when you're seeing the kind of bread and butter stuff? And that's a really helpful thing, I think, to think about. It's it's hard to imagine what it's like after you know everything and then you're out there in practice um, because it's easy to get... Uh, attracted to the the new learning and all of the excitement around a particular subspecialty but if you think forward okay how, what's this going to be like in 10 years when i'm seeing my 9000th diabetic or 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 you know yet another person with copd or something like that and if that speaks to you that's wonderful because we need all of those things for me i needed to have something that i knew was going to change more rapidly over time mm-hmm.
1: And so you also mentioned that there's a lot of teamwork involved uh, in your specialty, and that's also something that you enjoy.
0: Definitely. I like the interaction with, with other people, you know, that, that can create conflict and um, that's okay. Uh, There's, uh, there's room for that in, in anything you're practicing. So uh, I did, I do like the teamwork aspect of it. Not just of course, other oncologists, but I work closely with a nurse practitioner Um, there's RNs and LPNs in the clinic all the time. Pharmacists are integral, um, speech pathologists, nutritionists. I mean, it's a big team of people all looking after someone. And I, I like that. I like that aspect of it.
1: Is there anything that you dislike about what you do?
0: Well, I think, uh, at some, at some point politics and administration is frustrating for everybody. And I, I think that happens no matter where you are. So I work in a big hospital, I don't have much control over my computer or, you know, what kind of uh, schedule I have to a certain extent or who's working around me. On the other hand, um, taking a year of maternity leave was no problem. There's all sorts of people to cover for me. So, you know, there's always pros and cons with where you work. I think most of us find politics and administration are the things that are frustrating or difficult and that, that spans across all specialties. Mhm.
1: And you also talked about how um you enjoy the fact that it's sort of um medical oncology is it, it changes very rapidly and it's, there's always new things happening. Um so in your view uh do you find that there's there are going to be a lot of opportunities in the future for new physicians to come in and um, get involved?
0: Absolutely. I think oncology is one of the things that's changing uh the fastest that I can see. I guess other specialties may feel that way too. But um you know, our understanding of, of tumor biology and our ability to use integrative new technologies like genome sequencing, for example, technology is evolving and changing so quickly. And there's still so much we don't know about cancer, uh, that I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in oncology, um, which, which is wonderful. There's, you know, um, I mean, unfortunately the rates of cancer are going up, uh, We have all sorts of new different treatments, so people are living longer. Um, We still don't understand all the ways treatments work or affect people, so I cannot see any limit to the number of jobs going forward. Uh, You know, I don't think that we're going to find some magic bullet and cure people in the way that they imagined in the 80s. I don't think that's actually fair to put that onus on oncology to uh, cure something when we haven't been able to cure most things, so... I I do think that our our opportunity in the next ten to twenty years is to make cancer a, a, a chronic illness like the way many illnesses are, um, and uh, that's going to need people to look after them and and change medications around and that's uh, that's a, that's a lot of opportunity. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. So, do you have any comments about um, the work life balance? in medical oncology. Um, I know that you um, you have your family and uh, I'm sure you have hobbies and other things you like to do outside of medicine. Um, so what does that kind of balance look like?
0: Well, I think um, burnout and work-life balance is an issue that cuts across all specialties. Um, there's a lot of changes in, in medicine and medical practice and how the public perceives doctors and what they're expected to do. Um, I think Previous generations where being a doctor was your whole entire life and meaning and, um, you know, provided the entire central meaning to your existence. I don't think that there are many doctors like that anymore. I think for whatever reason, it's it's not that same kind of um, drive to have medicine be the be-all, end-all of your existence. So we all fight pretty hard to have some work-life balance. Um, you know, nobody comes in at at six o'clock and says, hey, you've worked too hard today. You should go home now. You know, you have to learn how to control um, the things that you're doing. You have to say no to some things. You have to set your own boundaries and limits and they will be different than some of your colleagues. And that can be frustrating too. You know, the one thing about medical oncology is that you're constantly reminded of the fragile nature of life. And how precious our time here is and I think that if that doesn't help you with your work-life balance (laughs) maybe nothing does the number of people who we see who are waiting for their retirement or just waiting for something and and then that doesn't come to be is is right in our face all the time and I think that that helps us remember how important other things are in in life so yes I have a family I care about a lot I have uh dog I have you know I um I love to kayak and be outside I ski and you know that's partly being in Vancouver um I love to read and travel well can't travel anymore but uh (laughs) you know all sorts of things so I feel like I I do uh, as much as I can outside of medicine as well but I also pick and choose what I do within medicine to try very hard to do the things that I find personally rewarding and work with people who um are like-minded in, in terms of, um, our research goals.
1: Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm curious as well regarding, um, the COVID pandemic, if it's impacted the work that you're able to do at all. Um, and if you think that it's going to have any lasting impacts on your field in the future.
0: Um, it has, um, it has affected our work life, our, our work in general, in the sense that, um, especially early last year but continuing on we uh we we now talk to a lot of people by phone and try to administer some care by phone which I don't actually like and it's very difficult to get a sense of how someone is on the phone it's it's an important aspect of medicine we do a lot of outpatient care by the phone but we it definitely drives home how we have to see, we do have to see people in person Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't able to see their family doctors, so by the time I see them they're they're sicker than usual. Um, they don't like to get they don't like to come in to see us. so again, it, it makes the severity of their illness a little bit more uh, significant by the time they get medical help. So I think that's been quite hard. And of course, people's isolation, very difficult. You know, if you have an incurable cancer and your lifespan is limited and then you have to be by yourself in your house for your last year of life, that's terrible. That has a that has a major impact on people. So I think we end up talking to some very lonely lonely people, um, which takes up time. That you know, it's time consuming um and, and difficult to provide the level of support that everybody needs. Uh I don't know how it's gonna affect things going forward. I think probably for the most part, we'll go back to seeing people in person as much as possible. Um, you know what's really interesting is how the long-term vi- effects of the virus itself um, will will play out. Uh, will this be a virus that leads to cancers, for example? All sorts of cancers are vir- virally mediated. Uh, we're we're studying those. We're studying those with with cancer genomics, which is really interesting. Who knows um, what what the long-term effects of COVID will be from that perspective? So maybe um, we'll be talking about COVID-induced cancers in twenty years. I, I don't, don't know.
1: Well, I think that's a great segue into speaking a little bit about your role as a researcher um, and the work that you've done at the Personalized Oncogenomics Center. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your role there and, and what that center is all about?
0: Yeah, so um, the Personalized Oncogenomics uh, Project, we call it POG, um, and then we we use it like a verb, like we POG people and... <laughs> When we, we have Pogapalooza, which is a big party every year to celebrate. So um, we call it, so Pog is, is what we refer to it as. So it started, um, geez, like 12 years ago with a patient of mine uh, who uh, had a cancer um, that was a little bit hard to, there was no real standard treatments for it. So uh, I I do what we usually do, which is I just was going to give him some standard chemotherapy and he was very unhappy with that. He was a physician himself. Um, and a researcher, and he said, "Well, how come you can't just sequence my cancer and tell me what treatments I should have?" And I laughed, "Ha ha ha!" I said, "That's not how <laughs> cancer works." <laughs> and he said, "Well, but it should." And so uh, we started talking to Marco Mara and Steve Jones, and Marco and Steve are the co-directors of the Genome Sciences Center, and that is a huge research um, organization that is um, one of the pillars of research under the BC cancer umbrella. Um, And it's a a big organization with uh, 13 labs um, underneath it, over 300 people and grad students and so on. So a big, big center. And we started talking about how, you know, how could we use uh, genomic technology to try to better identify uh, treatments for individual people. And it was just good timing in some ways, because there was a technologic advantage at that point that or uh, invention, innovation, I guess, that um, suddenly allowed the sequencing to be completed much more quickly. Um, And so we started down this project, and we sequenced this patient, and I used that information to pick some treatments. And and that sort of uh, led eventually to the start of POG, which um, we launched in 2012. And it really started as a, as a, feasibility study. could we biopsy patients and, and sequence their cancers? And would clinicians be interested in the information that came out? and would we be able to use it to better understand that individual person's biology and try to fix or sorry try to find drugs that matched up in some way to what was driving their cancers? Um, and over time, this idea really took hold, and uh, there was a lot of interest from clinicians and patients and family members. Um, so it's uh, been something that we've been now working on um, and expanding collaborations across the country and internationally as, as more people are able to actually sequence the entire DNA of a, person's, a person and their cancer and the RNA, which is incredibly important. Um, and uh, so we've learned to work together as a multidisciplinary team Again, there's that that theme where I really enjoy working as a group, and so I don't want some report or readout of this is, you know, these are all the uh, DNA abnormalities of a patient. I actually want to sit with the genome scientist and talk, talk through it and try to understand it um, using their expertise, not just assuming that I know things about uh, genomics because I Remember how to stick a fly onto a waxy stick. I, I need their expertise, and um, and they need to learn these scientists need to learn the importance uh, of the kind of information that they're generating and and how we, as clinicians treat that information um, and how we, how we uh, make decisions around patient care. So it's really brought the scientists directly into the clinic which has been a huge learning experience for them and for, for clinicians. So the ability to um, pull together a group of people to concentrate on one person's cancer at a time, it's really a really unique, uh, highly rewarding experience. I think we've all really grown from that. Um, and, you know, using cancer biology to try to direct patient care is is an increasingly common thing for oncologists. So we already were used to uh, a few different targets that we were able to measure, and that's part of standard of care. We already use cancer biology and some standardized tests to pick treatments. So what POG is about is trying to find targets for all the other people where that's not a standard yet. And when we find it and we prove it over and over again, then it becomes part of the standard. And so it's always on the edge of discovery and... Um, Experimenting, I guess, hypothesis generation, which um, keeps us keeps us busy and keeps us on our toes, and uh, and it's very edgy, I guess, um, which is part of the part of the intrigue.
1: That's fascinating. So it seems like the goal is really to deliver a, a very personalized um, type of treatment plan for the patient, rather than just like a general, broad, broad spectrum type of treatment.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, If we can understand what's driving an individual person's cancer, maybe we can turn that switch off. And sometimes we can find a driver, but there just really are not drugs for that yet. Um, P53 is a great example. P53 is a loss of a tumor suppressor gene. Well, how do you reinstate the loss of a tumor suppressor gene? We don't know how to do that yet. Um, But if you find some other thing, uh, you know, KRAS is turned on or... Uh, you know, that's a well-known one. You don't need POG for that. But we've found uh, fusions that are novel fusions that we, you know, um, have some hypotheses about what might be happening downstream. And then we target those things. And if it works in a couple of patients, well, suddenly that's something that internationally is being talked about. And POG has been uh, the start of some of those really exciting, interesting innovations that, that gain a lot of momentum once, once we're able to, to publish them and, and other people doing small projects around the world can see our results and, and leverage their own research. Uh, so it, PUG has been a catalyst for a lot of different projects and in fact is the catalyst for a big um, pan-Canadian data sharing project that the Terry Fox um, Research Institute and Foundation have been working with the federal government to launch this project called the Marathon of Hope um, Cancer Centre Network. So Marathon of Hope Cancer Centre Network is about um, creating uh, a national database of 15,000 fully annotated uh, cancer genomes. So if patients, cancers that have DNA and RNA sequencing and all of the clinical information that goes around that um, will be uploaded and shared uh, across Canada. Um, which uh, then we can leverage for all sorts of ex- extremely exciting projects and and uh, hopefully use that information to then um, develop new trials and um, understand tumor biology in a variety of um, different types of people and populations. Canada is so wonderfully diverse that uh, being able to do research in that environment is very exciting.
1: That sounds amazing.
0: So yeah, yeah, Pog has um got a lot of uh it's it's has the ability to enable people to do all sorts of different kind of research.
1: Mm-hmm. Is there is there maybe um like a website or somewhere where students can go to check this out and see if they're interested in um in Pog or, or the research that you're doing?
0: Yes. Uh <laughs> uh I think if you Googled um Personalized Oncogenomics. You'll you'll end up at the the um, the Genome Sciences Center website. Okay. Uh, actually, there's a, a quite a lot of information there. There's a bunch of videos um, explaining different aspects of POG, um, and our team just put through a successful grant to actually create a POG video that um, speaks more directly to the learning objectives of POG and so mm-hmm. on. So so yeah, if you if you searched that personalized oncogenomics. BCGSC.
1: Perfect. Wow. Well, um, I guess I just wanted to ask you, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to tell um, medical students, um, residents, or um, prospective students, anybody who might be interested in medical oncology, if you have anything, any advice for them or anything else you want to tell them? (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: a very open question, Igor. I mean, I think that there's a huge amount of pressure in, in medical school to pick the thing. That you're going to devote your whole life to, um, and I think it's okay to leave yourself open to change and experience, and 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 have an idea of what interests you, but not be scared that you have to pick the right thing right now because you you can change and evolve your career. It just takes energy and motivation to do that. Um, oncology is very very interesting and exciting. Um, and it is about helping people, but a lot of it is just about the energy and motivation to keep coming to work every day. Uh, and that speaks to the burnout question you asked, how do you, how do you maintain your interest, uh, 20, 30 years later? Um, it's, it's that you find your job meaningful, engaging. You like the people that you're working with, and you uh, are making a difference in patients' lives, but you're doing that in a way that engages your brain, and that's—I think—that's why we're all in medicine. It's—it's it's that kind of problem solving. Mm-hmm. So if that's the kind of person you are, then maybe medical oncology is for you.
1: And I think uh, maybe having a dog might help uh, mitigate some of that burnout too. You've got uh, Toby in your background there.
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody is ever as happy to see me as the dog. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> that's uh no i think surrounding yourself with family and friends those are critical you've got to be reminded of the outside world and you know how important life is and you know seize, seize the day it's true you, you do have to seize the day if anything cancer tells you how precious life is covid can change your life in a minute um and so don't put off those things that you want to do you know a group of us learned to snowboard when we were all post call from <laughs> CTU. It was crazy, and we got injured and whatever. But you know, you this is this is the time, and and it should make make use of it.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Laskin. Really appreciate you coming on the show and all your great insights. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, we hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. See you next time.
0: been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.